Welcome everybody. I'm Paul Pepis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Uh, welcome to this week's Work in Progress talk. Work in Progress talks are presentations given by faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center about their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function of Zoom, which you can activate by using the live transcript option. One final announcement before I introduce our speaker for today, please join us for the next lecture in the OHC's 2021-22 Imagining Futures series with our former colleague, Yale Associate Professor of Ethnicity, Race and Migration and American Studies, Daniel Martinez Hosang, this year's Lorwin Lecture on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Professor Hosang will give a talk titled, A Wider Type of Freedom, how struggles for racial justice liberate everyone on Wednesday, December 1st at 4 p.m. live via Zoom. You can register for the talk at ohc.uoregon.edu. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker for today, Yvette Saavedra, Assistant Professor in Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies, a historian specializing in 19th century U.S. history, borderlands history, history of the U.S. West, Chickenex history and gender and sexuality history, Professor Saavedra is particularly interested in the intersections of race, power, identity, colonialism, nationalism, gender, and sexuality. Saavedra earned a BA in history and Chicanax studies at Pitzer College, an MA in borderlands history from the University of Texas, El Paso, and a PhD in history from the University of Texas, El Paso. Professor Saavedra's book, Pasadena Before the Roses, Race, Identity, and Land Use in Southern California, 1771 through 1890, uh, published in 2018, examines and details the social and cultural history of how Spanish, Mexican, American, and indigenous groups competing visions of land use affected the formation of racial and cultural identity in Pasadena, California during this period. Saavedra received the 2019 Western History Association Huntington Library Martin Ridge Fellowship and is a 2021-22 Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellow. Professor Saavedra's work in progress talk, part of her current book project is titled Speaking for Themselves, Rancheras and Respectability in Mexican California, uh, 1800 to 1850. Welcome Yvette, it's great to have you here. Thank you all for having me. It's so wonderful to see you. Um, I'm excited to share this project with y'all. Um, it is a work in progress, so I welcome your I welcome your thoughts um, as I as I venture off to what is going to be my second book. So that's exciting in itself because you know one is good, but two, wow! <laughs> so I'm very excited. I'm I'm excited for this opportunity to share it with y'all. And so I do have a PowerPoint presentation to share with you, and I'll I'll put it up so that um, y'all can see it. But I also I want to say uh, thank you very much to the Oregon Humanities Center for the support. Um, in this research. Uh, the time has been wonderful and I've been able to make significant progress on the project, something that I wouldn't have been able to do without the support. So thank you, thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. So without further ado, here I go. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, okay, so, 
So the way that I have I have set this up is pretty much I'm going to talk a little bit. I'll share these PowerPoint slides with you. Um, not necessarily going to read from them because I know that's what everybody's looking forward to, but I'm not going to do that. Um, and so I'm going to read a little bit from the paper just to give you an idea of where I'm going. Um, my presentation today is part of my ongoing book project titled Living La Mala Vida, Living the Bad Life, Transgressive Femininity, Morality, and Nationalism in Mexican California. If you excuse me one second, I'm going to start a timer just so that I don't I don't go over in my time. I want to make sure that I have enough time for questions. Okay. Um, so the larger project examines the interconnectedness between race, gender, femininity, and um, Mexican nationalism and citizenship in early Mexican California. It's guided by two main research questions. First, how did colonialism, nation building, and the gendered ideologies of, of nationalism affect women's lived realities? And second, how did women engage and challenge the imposed ideologies of femininity, femininity and masculinity, race and sexuality to live their lives on their own terms? This is one of the questions that was really, really, that pulled me towards this particular research um, because one of the things I look at is, is how power functions within specific um, processes and in this case nation building and so I'm interested in so the nation imposes these ideas of, of gender but how do how did women in particular renegotiate those ideas and, and create their own lives on their own terms its purpose the story's purpose is to tell the story of how women negotiated and redefined understandings of femininity and womanhood within the burgeoning Mexican nation and localized nationalism of 19th century California Today's discussion focuses on how elite women of the California class, or who I term ranchera women, articulated and supported the settler colonialist ideals of gender and sexuality through their use of nationalist discourse, public enunciations, and performance of propriety, and their attempts to control narratives of their behavior. And so for those that aren't familiar with um, the terms in, in, in 19th century California history, um, the term California, California refers to the wealthy landed class in California. And the majority of those folks gained land through mission sec after mission secularization in the 1830s. And they were afforded this land through land grants. And so they end up being the, the large rancho families of California. And so for today, I am my work in this particular section is focusing on rancheras. It examines the elite women of the California class. So I'm terming them rancheras. <clears throat> and more broadly, this contributes to study of studies of liberalism in two significant ways. The first is that it shifts the regional focus. And the second is that it studies an earlier period. Usually, when we study Mexican liberalism, it, it examines the period after the 1840s. And it looks specifically at the Mexican interior. Um, but what I'm doing in this study is that I'm engaging with the concepts of liberalism, as well as the manifestation of nationalism in the California, what I'm terming the California borderland, right? So it's, it's outside of the Mexican interior. And so what I, I foresee this project really making a contribution to the study of Mexican liberalism in the early 19th century by shifting the regional focus, as well as the temporal, um, the temporal focus or the parameters, I should say. So I begin today with a brief discussion about sources. Historians love their historical sources. And so of course, I begin with that discussion. 
For this work, I conducted archival research and reviewed ranchera women's testimonials or life stories and court documents comprised mainly of the Los Angeles prefecture records. The, the testimonials were collected in the 1870s and the court documents that, I'm, that I use particularly for this chapter are from the Los Angeles prefecture records that are housed at, they're housed in both places. They're housed at the Los Angeles city archives, but they're also housed at the Huntington Library archive. And that is where I, I reviewed them. Um, now, the testimonials were gathered by three interviewers. And this is important because uh, California historians of the 19th century really look at these testimonials as an as an example of what was happening during the 1800s. Um, but those the the records themselves are not without limitation. And so I'm going to problematize those records a little bit because it's important. Um, so <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the testimonials were gathered by three interviewers, Thomas Savage, Enrique Serauti, and Vincent Gomez, as part of the historian Hubert Bancroft's 19th century multi-volume California history published in the 1880s. As such, they are filtered through 19th century white supremacist perspectives about Mexicans rooted in the ideologies of manifest destiny and its resulting US settler colonialism. So um, what the what Bancroft was interested in doing with these testimonials is that he his his interviewers were set out to to meet the the Mexicans right the ranchero class and a lot of the a lot of the testimonies that were taken which number about 70 or 80 were taken mostly from men. Uh, men like Mariano Vallejo, for example, or Antonio Coronel, right? These big names within Mexican or, or California history. Uh, in terms of the women, there were maybe about 13 that were women's testimonials. And so um, when we read them, uh, when we read these testimonials, a lot of times they're written in the language of the, of the person who was writing the interviews. So when we use them, we need to ensure that we account for the, the way that these interviewers racialized Mexicans during the 19th century, which of course was informed by these ideas of, of um, manifest destiny and the, racial, the underlying racial undertones of manifest destiny and conquest. So recognizing these limitations, oh, and, and with the women, of course, we're also looking at the fact that a lot of times the, the interviewers dismiss the women, they didn't really want to talk to them because they thought that, that their stories weren't as important to the history of California as the men's history was. And so even when we read these, these uh, stories what or these testimonials, the interviewers oftentimes were asking women questions about their husbands or about their fathers or about their brothers. And so the women, it was really interesting because you see the women actually um, ex exercising their agency by directing the conversation back to, to themselves. Right, so it's a it's a really it's a really interesting dynamic to pay attention to as as you go over these records, and so um, recognizing these limitations, I read Ranchera's words in these documents within the context of California liberalism, for what they reveal about California assertions of power and their roles within California settler colonialist society. <laughs> I see Ranchera's words as their way of creating, asserting, and preserving their own histories and identities as honorable, proper, good women. By centering and articulating their adherence to patriarchal California ideals, Ranchera women more broadly delimited the contours of hegemonic femininity and the, defined themselves as its models, while labeling directly or indirectly women who transgress normative gender roles and expectations of Ranchera femininity as bad women. 
Conversely, to contrast Ranchera's attempts to control narratives of their behavior and define their public image, I examine court documents contained in the, in the Los Angeles prefecture records. Review of these records allows me to examine how California civil authorities utilize gender and racialized class ideals to determine whether a woman who transgressed gender and sexual norms should be seen as redeemable. By my findings in these records show that women with strong direct links to the California class were often determined to be redeemable, while those considered outsiders faced social stigmatization as bad women. There are four interrelated elements that influence how I conceptualize this project and approach the sources, and I'm going to review each of these in, in detail as I go through my presentation. The first is California nationalism. The second is gender and sexual discourse within California nationalism. The third is how women engaged with this discourse. And the fourth is the development of a good woman, bad woman paradigm within California culture. I begin by defining what California nationalism means, how I am defining California nationalism. I use the term California nationalism to describe the localized nationalism that arose in California during and after Mexican independence in 1821. Informed by the work of Karen Kaplan, who in her study of early 19th century rural Oaxaca and Yucatan, argued that despite efforts at creating what she terms official liberalism in Mexico City, outside the Mexican interior, liberalism found its way into the political and economic realities of these rural areas. I found similarly in the California borderlands, the political and economic elements of liberalism, mainly the creation of an oligarch rancho system were accompanied by the formation of gender and sexual discourses that gave rise to social ideals and expectations of masculinity and femininity framed within localized understandings of liberalism. So essentially what I'm, what I'm doing here is creating, um, I'm, I'm, I'm accounting for the fact that within California, what happens in the 19th century is the emergence of a California identity that although it utilizes the discourses of Mexican liberalism, particularly political and economic liberalism of the early 19th century, it uses it to justify secularization and removal of the missions and their um, control of the eight, thousands of acres of land. It uses it to, to remove the missions from their, from their position of, at the top uh, of the um, control of land. And it, they, um, so they use it, they get the missionaries out of the way, they start accessing the land, but then their liberalism takes a different shape and they pick and choose which elements they want. So really, it's not surprising that they will create a, a localized liberalism that is contoured around their own desires to be the ones that own land and to stay at the top of the social and cultural hierarchy within these areas. And so, um, like for example, when they talk, when the California support the um, secularization of the mission and the and the um, emancipation of indigenous peoples from the from the missions themselves. They're arguing that it's because indigenous folks deserve rights, but then once the secularization happens, indigenous people are not given rights within the, the California society. Ultimately, we start to see that they're dispossessed of, you know, they're not actually given any of the land that's 
that's removed from by secularization, and they end up often working on the ranchos, and essentially they 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 don't they they're not able to access the promises that were made as part of liberalism. And so with that, I'm I'm framing my work. A, a great deal of what I'm doing in this book is is thinking about how localized understandings of nationalism are that are rooted in land and economy and specific a political oligarchy of sorts how that influences the, the creation of gender and sexuality and these ideals in the particular moment. So California nationalism is gonna be one of the chapters of the book, but I just had to kind of give you a little bit of an introduction so that you see that this is where, where my particular um, discussion of the sources and what I'm gonna talk about today is coming from. And so the second element then is alongside the economic elements of, national, of nation building, California's undertook the um, undertook building the gendered contours of California culture. Rooted in Spanish colonialism's patriarchal and paternalist ideologies, Californios um, <clears throat> relied on patriarchy to engender their social order. Using the heteropatriarchal institutions of marriage and family, long used from the 15th century to the 19th century Spanish-Mexican frontier to control the composition of the body politic, California shaped the racialized and gendered ranchero identity and culture distinctly contoured by their liberal ideals of land ownership and patriarchal authority. Centered around the control and dominance of the heteropatriarchal rancho and its familial networks, Californios articulated a gendered nationalist discourse delineating the gendered expectations of a hegemonic ranchero masculinity and femininity. Now, it's important here to note that rather than suggesting that the physical rancho itself was the exclusive domain of either men or women, I posit that California men and women's use of national discourse uh, to define masculinity and femininity, albeit in different ways as seen through their testimonials, indelibly marked the rancho as a site where socio-cultural gender ideals were made legible within the context of 19th century California. I conceptualize the rancho as the physical materialization of and the basis for hegemonic masculinity and femininity within a broader California gender dichotomy. I am developing this concept further in the larger book project. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> ranchero masculinity was based on the liberal ranchero's assertion of dominance over his wife, children, and the rancho's largely mestizo and indigenous workforce. Tie, uh, tied to his masculinity, to, uh, I'm sorry, tied his masculinity to patriarchal authority, paternalism, and land ownership. In this ordering, California liberals defined women as mothers of the nation and purveyors of culture and asserted a strict patriarchal domination aimed at controlling ranchera's sexuality and reproductive roles. Resultingly, this produced a heteropatriarchal gender and sexual dichotomy in which ranchera femininity complemented ranchero masculinity and tethered ranchera's honor and gender propriety to expectations of subordination and submissiveness that materialized through wifehood and motherhood within the rancho home and family and extended into broader society and culture. <clears throat> The third element is how women engaged with this structure. Ranchero women were integral to the growth and permanence of California society and culture. As shown by Athias and Yuval Davis and Gutierrez Chong, women's designations as reproducers of the nation and national boundaries and transmitters of national cultural, um, natural culture 
manifesting through biological reproduction and child rearing made them central to the creation of nation. Similarly, within California society, rancheras became the physical reproducers of the California state, linking honorable womanhood to their ability to bear many children and be a faithful wife. And this is why when you look at the, the ranchero families, there are families that have, I, I remember reading um, some of the testimonials will say, you know, I had 25 births. Right. And so they're, they're beginning to reproduce at the age of like 13 or 14. And they, they essentially, and as Sanchez has shown, they become like they're just used to reproduce that, you know. And, and so reproduction in these large families was part and parcel of respectable femininity in this period. Um, in addition to increasing the overall population, this, re this biological reproduction was also integral to delimiting the racial ethnic contours of California identity, a factor that affected patriarchal control over women's sexuality. The racial elements of California identity, mainly their self-constructed designation as non-indigenous, culturally Spanish Mexican class, prompted the use and monitoring of intermarriage to carefully craft the citizenry of, de of the developing California state. As historian Erica Pettis suggests, California's control of intimacy, or what she terms intimate colonialism, ranging from the control of marriage to quotidian inter-ethnic encounters, reflected their wariness of inter-ethnic and inter-class unions that could threaten their social and political power. This exemplifies California's attempts to maintain order through the control of gender and sexual behaviors and discourses of propriety. Resultingly, as members of the landed class, rancheras were invested in the nation building project and their adherence to gender propriety and normative gender expectation became inextricably linked to California nationalism. As Stern contends, not examining women's involvement in the production of gender codes and discourses results in the idea that only men were responsible for creating gender ideals and their accompanying stereotypes and archetypes. Therefore, by examining ranchera women's varying degrees of bodily enactments and public articulations of femininity, as well as the court's determinations of respectability, we centralize women's role in California nation building and critically engage them as complex and consequential participants in the discursive contouring of hegemonic womanhood. So essentially I'm saying, oftentimes discussions of nationalism in California center around men. And, and, and largely because of how, how the California men use their testimonials to create their, their particular vision of, of, of the California nation, if you will. And, and so here, what I'm saying is Californianas also did that, but they did it in a different, in a different way, right? They used it using the language of, of, of patriarchal nationalism um, in, in what, what I'll talk about later in, in terms of double voice discourse. Now located within the California Rancho home, hegemonic ranchera femininity was based on women's bearing of children and raising large fam families, punctuated by submissiveness and subordination to ranchero patriarchal authority. This ex these expectations originating amongst the ranchero elite were contoured and regulated through a good woman, bad woman paradigm, whose parameters were based on the control of women's behavior, sexual or otherwise, and defined as restrained and honorable or unrestrained and dishonorable. And here, I want to be clear of how I'm using the term contouring. In this work, I use contour as an analytical and conceptual fulcrum to convey the ranchero elite's intentionality and power in the production of gender discourses. 
I distinguish contouring from shaping because I see California's articulation of gender discourse as part of multiple intersecting systems of power forming during a transitional period. And this is part of, of what I was saying earlier about how I'm changing the temporal parameters of our studies of liberalism. And so because I'm looking at the early 19th century, as opposed to like the latter part of the 19th century in the Mexican interior in terms of what liberalism looks like, we're still looking at a transitional moment where liberalism itself is, is being defined and redefined. And so here, by using the word contouring, I'm hoping to convey the fact that there, there is an intentional purpose behind how Californios are using gender and sexuality at that particular given moment. So for example, the processes of California world making and nation building required the intentional reframing of the sociocultural order within the contradictory ideals and realities of economic and political liberalism and settler colonialism. These dynamics required an active intentionality or contouring of sociocultural various values and ideals including gender to create a hegemonic California society and a culture that sustained and legitimized the power of the elite. And this is what I mean by contouring. Now imposed on the lower and landless classes, these expectations reflected a California liberalism's racialized class and gender ideals. Rancheras conforming to patriarchal gendered expectations of wifehood and motherhood, albeit forced, translated into a publicly articulated complicity that detailed and sustained a broader discourse of hegemonic ranchera femininity and proper womanhood. Consequently, ranchera women's social privilege allowed them the allowed them to wield a limited patriarchal authority through discursive articulations and public enactments of hegemonic femininity that utilize and sustain the good woman, bad woman paradigm as a way to assert, I'm sorry, to define and assert honorable femininity, as well as control public perceptions about their gender behavior. My critical engagement with Ranchera's, Ranchera's words and actions, however, is not simply premised on whether Ranchera's conformed or deviated from patriarchal expectations, but rather on how their public discursive enactments of gender expectations reflect their exertion of a class power. So it's not whether they did it or didn't, it's more of like, what does it show when they did? Right? How did like when they did adhere to patriarchy and they they conveyed patriarchal discourse? What does that mean? And how did it look? It grapples with the consequences of these discursive and performative exertions of power, mainly the creation of the honorable woman and the stigmatizing and punishing of the bad dishonorable woman. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so. Um, the California, California liberal discourse detailed women's obligations to national reproduction through a gendered good woman, bad woman taxonomy, where propriety was defined and achieved through the enactment of and repetition of motherhood and a submissive controlled femininity. Although all women, regardless of ethnicity and class identity, were expected to support the California patriarchal order, it was the women of the ranchero class, as illustrated in former governor Juan Batista Alvarado's testimonial, who were defined as reproducers of the nation, quote, necessary to populate the territory and contain the heathen Indians, end quote. They were obligated to reproduce the civilized, strong California nation and publicly embody honorable femininity in their words and actions. 
In the cases of enclosure, the practice of placing errant women into respectable homes to eradicate their bad behavior, ranchera women served as models of liberal proper California womanhood and their presence in the home served as a corrective to errant femininity. Ranchera's women's complicity and support of the good woman, bad woman paradigm helped sustain a hegemonic order in which women who followed their example were defined as good women and those who did not were designated as bad women. And so what you see here is an example from the 1844 Los Angeles Padron. Padron means census. And so this is just a page of, of the census. And what you can see on the, um, and I'm not sure if you can see my cursor when I, when I point to it. Um, so you have the name, usually the, the age is here. And then here it would tell you uh, where they were, where they lived. Right, like uh, it would tell you if they were in Los Angeles. So basically all these folks lived in Los Angeles. So that's what, what this means. Um, now, this particular category was specific to occupation. So if a person um, was a servant, for example, it would say serviente, servant. Um, if a person didn't have an occupation or were what we would term unemployed, they would have an N, which meant ninguno. And so one of the elements that I'm going to engage with in the text is how the end, what the end meant for masculinity, right? Because men were supposed to be producers, right? And so the fact that what does it mean when men were designated with an N? What does that mean in terms of honorable masculinity? But that's another chapter of the book. Um, here, what I'm looking at is, and I bring your attention to the MV that is in the occupation section. That's what we're going to be talking about. Designated in the Los Angeles, in Los Angeles's 1836 and 1844 Mexican Padron or census with the letters MV next to their names, bad women were publicly marked for their incorrigible behaviors. The letters MV, as you see here, were an acronym for mala vida, which literally translates to bad life. They were used throughout the late 19th, I'm sorry, the late colonial Mexico period to stigmatize and shame women for living sinful lives that transgressed socially defined gender norms and behaviors. And so just to be brief here, um, mala vida, I'm using it in this particular context. Now, if you if you look at what mala vida meant in the period of the colon of the Spanish colonial period, it um, there's a significant amount of semantic change that goes on. And mala vida previously was used before it was used to designate bad women. It was used to um, interestingly, it was used to chastise men for not living up to their commitments to their wives. So if they weren't providing for their wives, women could, their wives could take them to court and say, he's giving me a bad life. He doesn't provide for me. He hits me. He has a, it was okay for them to have mistresses, but so long as the, the second house or la casa chica, as it was called, didn't get more than the main house, right? So mala vida goes through this change where the term starts to be used to police women rather as policing the institution of marriage itself. So that's an interesting caveat here with what mala vida means. And so I'm using it in terms of how it's used to police women's behaviors. Um, so in this sense, uh, mala vida was arbitrarily determined by the church, court, and local officials, depending on the period. Women's supposed impropriety and immorality was defined through a bevy of behaviors such as sexual promiscuity, extramarital affairs, uh, prostitution, unmarried cohabitation, and the bearing of illegitimate children. 
Although non-sexual behaviors such as outspokenness and resistance and refusal to patriarchal authority also resulted in women being defined as dishonorable and bad. And one of the things I'm looking at is how that's used in specific historical moments. Regardless of the alleged bad act or behavior, a woman's mala vida designation resulted in their mistreatment, ostracization, and marginalization within their communities. As you can see here, everyone knew who had the mala vida. In the Pueblo de Los Angeles, the 1836 and 1844 padrones included 42 women with MV designations. Many of these women were single, some were widowed, and most were mothers. The Pueblo's small size ensured that women with MV designations were known to the larger community, and their labeling was meant as a caution and deterrent to other women of the consequences of transgressing gender and sexual norms. Despite serving as a sociocultural form of gender policing, women's designation into the good woman, bad woman taxonomies that sustained the MV designation were rarely neat and were often influenced by a variety of social power dynamics. In Los Angeles, this dynamic is the context of California nation building. Women's regulation in this context took shape in a society in flux at the hands of a California oligarchy interested in establishing and maintaining their economic social power political control and patriarchal authority. And as we're gonna see in the upcoming cases, such as the case of Simona Mesto, the MV designation became a way to identify women who threatened men's authority over the family and women whose behaviors allowed them to live outside the boundaries of patriarchal supervision. And one of the interesting elements that I found in my research so far is that oftentimes women with the MVs live together. So it's, you can't see it in this particular example here, but I do have sections of census where you have three women with MVs living in the same place. Now, some scholars will argue that that's a brothel. And I'll say, okay, so what if it was? Either way, you have women recreating what family means. And within a context of patriarchal authority, right, in a, in a society of patriarchy, that in itself is transgressive. And so that's one of the elements that I'm gonna explore further as I continue my work. Now, um, the MV was emblematic of the attempt to establish order by regulating women's behaviors, sexual or otherwise, that, behave, that fell outside the scope of the physical reproduction and threatened the larger patriarchal order of the nation. Conversely, rancheras who were defined as mother of the mothers of the nation responsible for the reproduction of proper femininity were regarded as the embodiment of honorable good womanhood. And as such, rancheras had to ensure that their words and actions matched and supported California gender ideals. Although these societal expectations resulted in increased patriarchal scrutiny and oppression, rancheras social status afforded them more resources through which to negotiate patriarchal authority and control how how their character and behaviors were publicly portrayed, something that was not available to non-elite women. As we'll see in the case of Josefa Carrillo, elite women speaking through their testimonials used the discourses of California patriarchy to publicly assert their status as good women, even when their behaviors were less than honorable. And so here then, I invite you to look at these examples. <laughs> and I have a, a great amount of examples, but I've only chosen a few because I want to make sure we have time to go over them and, and talk a little bit about the project. And so um, in this, these particular examples could pertain to creating respectability in the court. So these two women, as you'll see, as I talk about their examples, are not necessarily elite women, like they don't have direct connections to the elite, um, but there is some element of, of um, status involved here. Um, <clears throat> 
As we see in the cases of, in the examples of Domatila Ruiz, Simona Mesto, and Josefa Carrilla, it becomes clear that the defining of propriety and honor often rested in the hands of the elite class and its accompanying institutions. While women of the California class uh, and their families often use their social status to control how their behaviors were publicly perceived, it was judges and court officials who determined how transgressive women would be corrected, thus the creation of respectability in the courts. As Sloan found in Oaxacan court cases dealing with transgression of gender behavior, although judges rarely had to explain their verdicts and offered very little to elucidate their decisions, their conclusions spoke volumes about public morality. Similarly, in Los Angeles, judges and court officials from the California class, remember, this is a California oligarchy that owns all of the land, but also is in charge of all of the, or in charge of all the courts. So they're creating the, the, the state. So similar, uh, I'm sorry, undoubtedly, as, as we look, um, I'm sorry, in Los Angeles, judges and court officials from the California class were the ones who determined whether women like Domatila Ruiz were redeemable. Undoubtedly, as we look closer at the cases of Ruiz and Mesto, um, will show that these determinations about gender and sexual propriety were influenced by California ideals of race and class. These factors would also provide rancheras such as Josefa Carrillo the opportunity to control the narratives around her actions. Domitila Ruiz is the first person that, that I'll speak about. Um, it's an example of the California's use of familial networks to influence the court. On July 26, 1847, Doña Sencion Villa approached the court requesting that her 14-year-old goddaughter, Domitila, be, quote, confined in a respectable home. According to Villa, her goddaughter had been, had been, quote, leading a life of prostitution and committing disgraceful acts in the city, end quote. The court agreed and ordered that Domitila be confined in the home of Don Antonio Ignacio Avila, quote, a respectable family with a well-known reputation and religious habits and near and a near relative of the girl, end quote. On July 31st, Domitila Ruiz escaped the Avila home, was apprehended, and then taken to the home of another honorable person, Jose Antonio Carrillo. <clears throat> Born to Jose Agaton Ruiz and Maria Gertrudez Varelas on November 21st, 1835, Domitila's connection to the ranchero class was not immediately evident. And bear with me here, because it does sound like a little bit of a novella, and um, you'll see what I mean when I get to it. So for example, the 1836 Padron lists all the men in both Domitila's immediate family and extended family on her father's side as having no occupation. So her father, for example, had an N next to his name. By July 1834, when her godmother petitioned the court for her enclosure, Domitila's parents were no longer involved in her life. Efforts to place her in a respectable home were undertaken by the court and the mobilization of extended family networks. When Villa brought the court to, I'm sorry, brought the case to the court, Judge Enrique Avila indicated, indicating the importance of corrective transgressive gender and sexual behavior stated that, quote, the court should not be indifferent to complaints of this nature, end quote, and decided to that Ruiz confinement to, res, to the respectable home of Don Antonio Ignacio Avila, a near relative, was necessary. This decision illustrates how extended family networks through systems such as compadrazgo or godparenting afforded the necessary parental authority to reform Ruiz's behavior and reincorporate her into respectable society. 
Dometila was connected to the Avila family, one of the region's oldest, most respected families through her mother. And we have, we have um, this family in both San Diego and Los Angeles. It's a really large California family. Gertrudis Varelas was the daughter of Maria Ilaria Avila, making her the granddaughter of Cornelio Avila, the patriarch of the Avila clan. Cornelio was also Antonio Ignacio Avila's father. Antonio Ignacio was married to Maria Rosa Ruiz, who was related to the Varelas family by marriage. Judge Enrique Avila was Antonio Ignacio's nephew by his brother, Anastasio Avila. You, you see what I mean about novella? It was this connection to the Avila family that, and their status as gente de razón, or people of reason, and her godmother's efforts that provided Domitilia the social capital necessary to be determined as redeemable rather than a bad woman. So it was her, essentially what I'm saying here is that the grandfather's connections and the respect that he held in the family, even though she had ultimately been abandoned by her mom, was what allowed her to, to be put into this house as part of like a, an attempt to redeem her. Um, and unfortunately, we don't know how it turns out because there's nothing left of the records of her in the records. In August, and the next case here, Simona Mesto, the, this case illustrates how racial status influences the court's perceptions. In August of 1848, Mariano Roldan addressed the court regarding the custody of his youngest daughter with Simona Lopez Mesto. Roldan contesting an order requiring he deliver the girl to Maria Victoria, his, the girl Maria Victoria to La India Simona. This is how they referred to her in the court. Um, he relating his examples such as not suckling the child at her breast or quote dragging her like a dog. He accused Lopez Mesto of being a bad mother and a quote prostitute of bad behavior. Uh, um, bad reputation, I'm sorry. He evidenced his accusations of Lopez Mesto's immorality by stating that she had, quote, taken their first child away from him to start her on the road to perdition, end quote. Positioning himself as a fa honorable father with good intentions of poorly educating, I'm sorry, with good intentions of properly educating the said child, he promised the youngest child would not suffer like the first by being guided along an evil path. And so what you see here in the pink, this is a Roldan family in 1844. So uh, you have Mariano and then Simona and then the children that I'm talking about. Um, Simona Mesto was born on October 28th in 1802 to Narciso and Feliciana who were neophytes at the San Juan Capistrano mission. And so she then was also a neophyte or a child of a neophyte. Before entering into the common law marriage with Roldan that would eventually bring her to the court in 1847, she was married to a neophyte by the name of Diego. Simona and Diego married in 1826 and had three children. During the 1830s, Simona enters into a common law marriage with Roldan and they have two daughters. So the two daughters that they have are Luisa and Victoria. And so, and, and so in this family, what you see on the census is that they're living together the previous children and the, the present children. <clears throat> the, the couple lived together in Los Angeles with the two daughters and their previous and the two children from the previous marriage. Designated with the MV in 1844, Simona was an easy target when Roldan leveraged allegations of prostitution, immorality, and bad mothering as justification for gaining custody of, her, of their youngest daughter. In his claim, rather than solely focusing on her transgressions, Roldan attempted to convince the court to award him custody by using the patriarchal discourses of California nationalism. And Roldan, he was actually a grantee. He owned um, what is now the city of La Habra, but it was Rancho La Habra at the time. So he was familiar 
familiar with what ranchero masculinity was. So he centered his patriarchal authority and reiterated his ability to protect Victoria's honor, as well as his right to, quote, defend the sacred rights of his home and family. And so despite their relationship, Roldan being part of the landed class, Simona remained outside of the lines of respectability because she was an indigenous woman. And we see this in the records because they refer to her as La India. Right. And so in this case, what we see is that Roldan is the one that's delimiting the boundaries of femininity for Simona. He refers to her as La India. He uses words like prostitute, greedy, scandal, perverted to center her sexual transgressions, which I might point out here, I must point out here, that they become an issue to him once they're getting separated or he's fighting for custody. He, you know, she already had the MB designation when they got together. So it's hypocritical is what I'm saying, right? And so ultimately what happens with Simona is um, he was ensuring, Roldan was ensuring that the court continued to see her as lacking respectability. And so Simona's continued challenging of Roldan's characterizations and his attempt to deny her access to her children, the fact that his social position outweighed hers, it ultimately results in her bad woman status being continuously reimposed. So she didn't have the power to, or the social status to control how her the story was told. So ultimately she, she's not able to save her children because Roldan just simply has better, better connections. And that's what happens in the court. And so the last example that I'm going to give you here, and, and I'll be brief here because I'm, I'm kind of running over time, actually got 20 seconds, but I'm going to talk just two minutes over, um, is the case of, of Josefa Carrillo, who is the elite woman example of, of my study here. And she, I want to show how she controls, she has the ability to control her, her um, own um, narrative. So in April of 1829, Josefa Carrilla, who you have pictured here, the eldest daughter of Joaquin Carrillo and Maria Ignacia Lopez, one of the largest, most prominent families in California, eloped with the person on the right here, uh, Massachusetts sea captain and merchant Henry D. Fitch. She used and performed California liberalism's gendered discourses to restore her honor. Now, I also have to point out the fact that there are images available for Josefa just tells you her status. There are no images for the other women that I spoke about because they, you know, they didn't have the means to have them produced. Since their first meeting in 1826, the mutually smitten couple respected Carrillo's patriarchal authority and followed all courtship protocols. So they went for, they asked for permission to marry. Carrillo had approved the union, and and of course he, the as a as the patriarch, Carrillo decides he's going to plan this big elaborate wedding. Now on the day of the wedding. Um, and this is what Josefa describes in her in her testimonial. The nuptials were interrupted on the orders of Governor Jose Maria Echendia, who, due to his anger at Josefa's rejection of his romantic interest, forbade the marriage. And yes, there was a little bit of jealousy involved there, but there are other elements that that caused why you know the disruption of the marriage. Uh, even though Josefa said it had a lot to do with him being jealous, um, determined to marry Josefa. I'm sorry, Fitch and Pio Pico, his close cousin and uh, his close friend and cousin of Josefa organized the couple as an elopement. Josefa described how Pico, quote, and I'm going to show you the, I'm going to show you the elopement. Here's the elopement. Josefa, Josefa's cousin organized the elopement and Josefa describes how Pico, quote, came to my house and using several arguments that touched the soul of a young woman in love, end quote, easily convinced her to go with him and meet Fitch at the nearby ship. So here you have Pio Pico, uh, 
whisking her away to take her to the ship where she and Fitch will sail off to Chile to marry. So they do, they elope, they get married, but elopement was not a respectable option for women of her class because so much of Ranchera's social capitalism was tied to respectable marriage and domesticity. It was very, very crucial that they follow the protocols of marriage to maintain their reputation. And so the problem with Josefa's story here, or I should say what the challenge is, is that what she did by eloping is it placed her in the realm of, dis, of, un, of dishonorable femininity. So when the couple returns to California a year after their elopement, her mother goes to the ship where Josefa is and says, your father's resentful and angry and he's promised to kill her, he, she says, upon sight. So Josefa, she says, quote, preferring to risk death than live in anger with the author of her days, immediately went to the family home to plead her father's forgiveness. Upon entering the residence, she finds her father sitting by a small desk with a rifle by his side. And quickly, she begs, her forgive, begs his forgiveness for having left his home. Seeing her words received with silence, Josefa knelt down and crawled towards him, pleading for forgiveness, adding that, quote, had she disobeyed him, it was only to withdraw from the hateful tyranny condemned by laws and customs. Josefa described that after a long silence, her father arose from the chair. He, quote, lifted her in his arms and said, I forgive you, my daughter, for it is not your fault that our governors are despots. Having reconciled, having reconciled, Josefa motions all of the women to come into the home to congratulate her on her happy return. And so the, the part of the story is, the next part, is that he organizes this big wedding ceremony and you know, they're, um, they're celebrating her coming back. Now, although this is a very romantic story, right? It, it's a very well-known and retold story of romantic California. If we read it through the gendered elements of California liberalism and nationalism, it illustrates how gender power functioned within California society. It illustrates how rancheras had the opportunity to tell their stories and re, re, um, what's the word I use? Restore their honorable womanhood. So <clears throat> she uses California nationalism as a way of reasserting her public image. She relates the story of her actions and reconciliation with her father, um, mainly to try to recuperate his public honor and his image as a way of, of dealing with her dishonor, but his potential dishonor as well. In detailing her pleas for her father's forgiveness, Josefa played into the three key elements of ranchero masculinity. She humbles herself and uses deferential body language and bodily comportment when approaching her father. She recognizes his authority. And this is what restores his gender, the gender order of his home. Secondly, describing how Pico used, quote, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Pico used several arguments that touched the soul of a young woman in love to convince her to go with him. She strategically employed the discourse of emotion stirred by love of Henry Fitch or of nation or both. And in discussions of nationalism, women are oftentimes um, connected to this idea of emotion and the emotion is for love, but also love of country. So she's kind of playing with the way that men use emotion within pay, uh, patriotism and nationalism. Um, this defines her actions as patriotic, not the act of a bad woman. And lastly, she frames the explanation of her transgression through California discourse, critiquing the governor's abuse of power. She positioned herself as contesting the tyrannical imposition of an outsider authority. 
Reading Carrillo Fitch's explanation through what Chicana theorist and historian Emma Perez terms feminism and nationalism, a form of double voice discourse through which women reinterpret and redeploy patriarchal nationalist discourse to negotiate their position within and between dominant male discourses, she, she uses um, nationalist discourse to elucidate her honorable womanhood within California patriarchy. In other words, she frames her disobedience not as being a bad woman, but rather as a response to tyrannical power. Specifically for her, it was Echiendia's punitive assertion of patriarchal authority. Josefa's critique of, governors, of the governor's actions in California nationalist terms justified her transgression in a way that her father would understand. Basically, he says, the, she's, she's saying the governor is a bad man and I had to disobey you because he was imposing ill will on me. And this is what Californios often did to outsiders, outsider governors. And so ultimately what we're dealing with then, and there's so much more that I can continue to talk about, but what I'm showing in these particular examples is that um, Josefa, as opposed to Domatila or to Simona, Josefa actually has the chance to tell her story. And she does it not only at the moment, right? Like she's, she's recuperating her image at the, at the moment in which she was living, but because in a way she becomes a kind of the person who is going to also tell the history of the past, she's also retroactively restoring her own womanhood for, for, for the duration of history, right? So she's ultimately saying, I was a good woman then and I'm a good woman now, right? And that that's something that we can't, that the women of the, of the lower classes, women like Domatila, women definitely like Simona, didn't have that opportunity. They could not speak for themselves. And so um, ultimately with the quote here, um, this is again, what's framing my ideas as I keep working through this, this particular chapter and then the rest of the work is that the creation of the nation often occurs in the hands of the elite. Those who have the power to define the nation um, in ways that further their own interests. The same elites are able to define who is central and who is marginal to the national project. And because respectability was tethered to nation building, non-elite non women's respectability was decided by the court. But for elite women, the control of their narrative was central to respectability, but that's because they were elite. And ultimately, it was ranchera women who contoured and reinforced these ideals of gender and sexuality. And so I'll stop there, but I really could go on forever, but, <laughs> but I will stop there so I could get some questions. Thank you so much Yvette, for that really, really uh, interesting uh, work in progress talk. And it's clear that you could go on for considerably longer. Um, uh, please, if you have any questions for Yvette, uh, just type them into the chat and I'll share them with her. And I'll start out and I just wanna ask you a little bit more about the agency of these elite women. And you, you speak about the, the example of Josefina and how she um, in her, um, plea to her father, you, you talked about a kind of strategic deployment of femininity to, um, to win back his approval. And I'm, I'm just interested in this idea of um, her, her, the, the nature of this strategic agency that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I mean, you emphasize when you're talking about contouring the crucial fact of intentionality. And my question mm -hmm. is that in her testimonial, did she make clear that this was a kind of strategic maneuver on her part? Or, uh, well, I guess that's how I would say it. How can you determine the degree 
of intentionality in this behavior or is this just the, the nature of constrained agency in, in that context? That's a good question. I think, you know, because as, as, um, as a historian, I think I, we often grapple with the questions of like, are we imposing readings on sources or is this what they were intending on saying? And so with this particular, in, in response to your particular question, the way that I'm approaching it, I'm thinking about it, um, the way that uh, Hayden White talks about how history is implotted, how it's a story and how there's power behind it. And so this is a, this, this is a discussion that's often utilized when talking about the, about the men's testimonials, right? How the men were consciously creating the past in the 1870s, right? So they're creating themselves in this good light where they were these strong patriarchs who fought for California and, and, and whatnot. And so I'm, I'm looking at Josefa's words and I'm reading them as, a, as, a, um, as an intentional implotment of her story. Um, that she's telling the story the way she is because she's consciously trying to, um, in many ways, um, preserve the way that she's gonna, going to be perceived for generations to come, right? And so, although I don't know, I think she was very conscious of it. She didn't necessarily say this is what I'm doing, but I think that if we read it through through this idea of, of historical implotment and narration, um, as other scholars have, like um, I'm thinking the work of Rosaria Sanchez, um, most definitely Rosaria Sanchez, um, and also Rosemary Beeb, Right, and, and all these other historians of this particular period, I think that we, we can start to patch together like the power dynamics that women were conscious of in telling these stories. Um, and so I think that in many ways, she was really just trying to, to create her own public image. And, and insofar as how it's connected to, to, to women's agency, I think you know one of the parts I wasn't able to, to include here was that when the party happens after she recon reconciles with her father, one of the first things they do is that they bring women, they bring everybody back into the house. And so in that group, we're all, and she says this, respectable women of the community. And so here, this is where I contrast what the courts do, where you have men deciding whether women are respectable. In for her, it wasn't, yeah, her dad forgave her, but the respectability element came from the fact that the women showed up to the house. And so she reiterates it. She says it at least two or three times. These are respectable women and they came to the house, right? And so I think that in that sense, you see this kind of like community of elite women. They're the ones that are determining, hey, you're okay now, we're gonna bring you back. See, as to where like, where you see Domitila and, and um, Simona, they don't have that opportunity. And so, yeah, I think the agency, part of it is me reading reading it with a lens that, that recognizes um, a kind of proto-feminism in their, in their action and like why they're strategically using the language and the, you know, it, reiterating, I knelt down, I threw myself at his feet, right? Aggrandizing the patriarch. I, I hope that answers your question, Paul. Yeah, very helpful, very helpful. So the next question is, is a ultimate, it's a two-part question and it's ultimately about uh, research methods. Mm -hmm. So. The first part is presumably the non-elite women, there are no testimonials from the non-elite woman. Is that correct? So um, there are some testimonials that include uh, women who are not wealthy, but the like these women that I talked about don't have testimonials. So you're right in that. So the the the, the research question is 
um, how do you access information about those non-elite women? Are those court records the only source for uh, knowledge about them? Um, yeah, it, it really is. It's it's a it's it's like doing detective work. <laughs> um, so it's it's trying to patch together their lives. And so the prefector records. First, I began with the census records, um, looking at those who are designated as as living MVs. Um, or living with the MV, right? Um, uh, then I took those MVs and went into the prefector records to see if there was any mention of them, which there are some, but part of that process was like, and I'm not exaggerating here. Um, I did go through over the summer, I went over about a thousand, a thousand two hundred documents in the prefector records searching for any kind of mention of so-called bad women. And so they show up in these court, prefe these prefector records. Um, there's a couple of other documents that I need to look at, at the, that, which would be the criminal records that are at another depository that I'm planning to get to in this in next summer. Um, and so, yeah, you know, with these women, the only way you can find their voices is through, is through prefect court records, criminal records. I found a lot of information through genealogical databases, trying to find um, birth certificates, confirmation certificates, marriage records. So it really is just putting their lives together. And I can't, I can't tell you how exhilarating the feel, I can't describe how exhilarating the feeling is to like actually find them, right? To find them. Yeah, exactly, Julie, the ancestry.com has been very, very helpful for for locating these folks and and um you know and i always vet i always go through to 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 uh what is it uh vet those sources because you know sometimes people you know make mistakes and one of the most the one of the difficulties paul here is trying to um everybody has similar last names and you're dealing with records uh folks that were taking down records that were not necessarily correct so avila sometimes transitions to villa right and so that, that's a challenge, but yes, to answer your question, it's difficult to find the voices of those that don't have the means to have their pictures drawn or their stories written down, the people that no one asked, right? And so it's it's a challenge, but oh, that that's how I've approached it, trying to just bits and pieces. And so the next step is to find criminal records. Okay, so the next um, uh, question, so this is from Annalisa Taylor, who says, thank you for this wonderful talk. What was the purpose for Bancroft et al. in gathering these testimonials? What was at stake for the interviewees? Mm -hmm. Annalisa is interested in understanding how this study conceptualizes US Western expansion and imperialism from the perspective of Californios in the historical moment between mission secularization and the US annexation of California and the greater Southwest. Okay, I'm going to need you to repeat that second part when I'm done with the first part. So the, so the first part in terms of what Bancroft does, um, it was part of a larger history that he did on California, and, and we're talking multi-volumes. Um, and so uh, what his intention was, it really was to create this, um, the history of California's past. And he want, in this particular project, he was trying to, to capture or represent the voices of, of, of um, of Mexicans or this, and you know, it's part of that Spanish heritage stuff that, that goes on. Um, and so here, when I use the word represent, I don't mean it in the way that we use the term represent, like representative of different voices. What I mean here is that they oftentimes spoke for the persons, especially for the women. 
So it's very clear in the testimonials, the way that they're written, um, because again, they're written in the words of the, of the interviewers as to where when you have Mariano Vallejo, Mariano Vallejo is the one telling his story. When you have cases like Josefa Carrillo, the story is being told for her through the, through the it's filtered through Thomas Savage's words. And so they get to decide what's important and what's not. And so that's one of the challenges of using the work. But again, the purpose Bancroft had behind it, I think was, was pretty much to try to, to show this is the history of Mexican California. Now, um, the second part was, um, so what the did the interviewees? The, mm -hmm. um, what was at stake for the interviewees? That's part two, and then there's a third part. Okay, so the second part, what was at stake for the interviewees? Um, I think for, for the men and women as well, and this is what I'm trying to do with the work is to show that for the women, they, they were equally involved in, in how they told their stories in the sense of the importance for, for being able to, to contribute to these testimonials. Um, and what I mean by that is for, for the Californios that were interviewed as part of this history, um, they were trying to present they were trying to create their history. So in a sense, they are the historian at that moment. They are telling the story in the way that they want, they're telling the story the way that they want to re be remembered and the way that the Cali they want the California nation to be remembered. And so there is a power dynamic involved in that. And, and so um, what results is that because like the, the men's testimonials are very, very masculinist and they downplay the role of the women's participation in, in the production of nation itself like they will talk like Antonio Coronel will refer to women in his testimonio as will Mariano Vallejo but they're often talking about them you know in the household right so it's it's like reinforcing this idea of patriarchy but to be fair they also said yes you know they did a lot of things that would be contradictory like you know they would sometimes have to go and work outside or you know, but they, they did talk about femininity, but in a very masculinist kind of way. For the women, though, what I'm doing in the project is trying to let let um, the voices of the women speak for themselves, right? See that the women themselves are also involved in this power dynamic. So they're interested in, in how they are going to be perceived mm -hmm. by the people that are going to read these sources. And, or I'm sorry, the people that are going to read these histories. So what's at stake for them is like their historical their historical, the, the way that they're remembered, historical memory. So the, the last part of the question is um, how your study, how does your study conceptualize US Western expansion and imperialism from the perspective of Californios in this historical moment between mission secularization and the US annexation of California and the greater Southwest? Okay. Um, what I, and this is something that I approached also in my first book, when I look at, at California history, I do look at it from the perspective of uh, a borderlands kind of perspective. So I'm not necessarily, I'm not looking at it only exclusively through westward expansion, right? I'm looking at it also in terms of north, northern expansion. And in both senses, we're looking at, in, in the sense of both, west or, whether we're moving you know, east to west or, or south to north, what we're dealing with is settler colonialism. Right, and, and I think that that's, that's um, one of the important elements here to how I'm conceptualizing the study. Um, I'm looking at how settler colonialism, in the first book I called it competing visions. 
the way that that settler colonialism had these competing visions about land use, but that in a way they were all geared towards maintaining power over those that didn't have land. And in this case, I think that it's it's the same idea. It's just looking at how does gender participate, or um, rather, how is gender used within that particular process, and so how does it conceptualize or reconceptualize um, Western history from the perspective of of, um, of the Californios? Um, I think what it what it's doing is that it's showing another uh, caveat, or I'm sorry, another um, facet of settler colonialism. Because I think oftentimes we focus on, and I say we in the sense of like how folks will often approach California history and say, oh, it begins in 1848 because that's California. And it's like, well, not really. California existed before that, before the state of California, right? And so I'm trying to insert a voice that is not necessarily heard in this case, not just the male Californios, but the women. But I, I don't mince words about the fact that the women were equally as involved in the production of nation, right? And I think that's one of the things I'm getting at in this particular section. Um, so in the chapter that will be about Malavida, it's going to be how do the so-called bad women, how do they create nation? And so I think that's what ultimately is gonna be the biggest contribution of the text, right? I, I think it's gonna provide us a way to understand how it's the bad women who are the ones that are really revolutionary um, because the, the elite women they have an interest in maintaining the status quo. And so that's where I think the change will come in, in the larger discipline. I think in understanding um, you know, the, how power functions um, from the bottom up. I hope that makes sense. I hope, you, I, hope I made sense, I was clear on that. <laughs> We're just about at the end of our time at that. And I wanted to ask the final question based on what you just said, which is that you, you know, the next chapter is the Malavida uh, chapter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are the research challenges for researching, you know, these women who might have lived together in an alternative family in a brothel? How do you access information about them and their agency and their subversive agency? That's a good question, Paul. <laughs> I think what's going to happen is I'm hoping that there is this like magic folder at the Seaver <laughs> archive where I'm going to open it and it's just going to be um, arrest records. Because, you know, sadly, that's that's how we find them. That's how we find them. Um, because because as as um, sex workers, they were not regarded as valuable. Right. And so how do we in many ways, I, I, I I'm going to utilize the ideas of queer theory to try to understand and wrap my mind around, like how these women were redefining gender. Um, and so, yeah, that it is a, it's a big challenge. I think it, it's going to be a hard chapter to write. Um, but I, it's, I look forward to the challenge and I look forward to, to continuing to tell the, to create the, uh, what is it? Um, recreate the lives of these women to give them the, the recognition and respect that they deserve. Right. Just like Josefa Carrillo, Simona Mesta was important too. Right. And so that's what I'm trying to do. So so it's a challenge. I, I will keep you posted on how that, how that works out. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that. And thank you so much, Yvette, for this fascinating work in progress talk. This is such innovative and challenging and interesting research. It's been such a pleasure learning about it. Thanks so much for sharing it with us. Thank you all. Thank you so much for making time and sharing your afternoon with me. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for joining us for Yvette Savandra's Work in Progress talk. 
Um, for more information about the Oregon Humanities Center, this year's Lorwin Lecture on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties by Yale Professor Daniel Martinez Osang on December 1st at 4 p.m. Or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu and we'll see you next time. Thank you.